We'd all love to spend more time outside, to see more birds, have more fun, connect with friendly people. Our happiness depends on it. But modern life can push us away from nature. Enter Berta. Berta is the free new app that boosts your birdwatching experience. Fun birding challenges, leaderboards, and cool badges turn seeing bird life into a game. And better still, all the sightings go to help bird conservation. Come bird with Berta. Sign up today. It is free. You can find Berta, that is B-I-R-D-A, on all app stores. Look around your home. I bet there's a bunch of bird-related books or art. And of course there are, because, well, birds are your obsession. If you're looking for a great way to discover more bird-friendly brands, bird artists, authors, and so much more, we'd love to introduce you to BirderBox. BirderBox is a subscription service that sends you a package four times a year filled with birdie things that allow you to dive deeper into your passion. BirderBox is the world of birding unboxed. Learn more at birderbox.com. That's B-R-D-R-B-O-X-X.com. Hi, this is Wayne Clocker executive director of the American Birding Association. For over 50 years, the ABA has been serving the community of birders in North America by providing news, resources, and connections to assist birders on every step of their journey. And we need your help to continue into the future. By making a gift to the ABA, you're providing us with the resources we need to continue producing world-class stories from inside the world of birding, like the ones you've heard here on the American Birding Podcast. You'll help us continue building ABA community and the ABA community app, a place for birders to discuss all things birding and get advice and ID help from community experts on the go. And you'll help us continue producing birding and North American birds magazines with in-depth information and stories from the world of birding and bird conservation. Please make a gift today by going to aba.org appeal or by calling 800 850 2473 and help the birding community continue to grow and thrive. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. I am out of town this week in Colombia speaking at the Manizales Bird Festival, but because I care so much about spreading quality bird content to all of our listeners. You're still getting a new episode. It is, however, one that I recorded earlier than I usually do. That means mostly no rare bird focus this week. We will catch up next time around. It also means I lean again on my colleague, Ted Floyd, editor of Birding Magazine, with another random birds. But these are these are fun. I think you'll enjoy this one too. Ted and I talk ducks, hummingbirds, sparrows. We really hit all the highlights on the bird checklist this time around, and I will end the ado here and now and send you off to it. Random Birds with Ted Floyd once more. Enjoy. As we do from time to time when I need some content or I'm out of town or whatever, I call upon my colleague Ted Floyd, editor of Birding Magazine, and of course many other things with the ABA to do a bit, of bird know, pontification consideration any of those any of those things uh with random birds like kind of see where the conversation goes because birds are interesting and my goodness don't we like to talk about them ted how are you doing on this uh at least where i am very chilly fall morning 
Yeah, so we're actually back into sort of the sunshine and relative warmth here. We, had, I know, it just comes and goes. We <laughs> had always a, backwards. We we had a heavy <laughs> snow and temperatures near zero Fahrenheit less than a week ago, but uh, the snow is gone and the lakes have thawed and the weather is mild again. So uh, very sort of mild and sort of just I know early autumn-like uh, November for us right now. Yeah, go figure. The the go leaves figure. are changing. The juncos are in place. We are very much feeling like a. Uh, like a winter birdscape. Yeah. Now to put uh, things there. in a uh, in a continental perspective, the leaves yeah, are, yeah. Are, have long changed. We don't have any leaves <laughs> on the tree at all. We remember we've had temperatures down near zero. The crickets yeah, have stopped yep. chirping, and uh, we've had hard freezes and heavy yeah, snow. We had our first hard frost the other day. But yeah. but uh, today uh, was a uh, a shirt sleeve day, but still is a shirt sleeve Go day. Figure. So, yep. Go figure. Well, for folks who are unfamiliar, perhaps of the random birds uh, idea, uh, I already kind of teased it a little bit. We take a random number generator. I just Google random number generator. And I have this list of birds that I created a long time ago. It's a little bit outdated, but we'll we'll work through it. It's a, a list of the birds that are in common on the lists um, between the states where, where Ted and I live. I live in North Carolina. Ted lives in Colorado. We have a list of not quite 400 species between us that we can uh, call upon. And it is uh, quite the smorgasbord of uh, birds that are found across the continent. So we usually get uh, a good list of birds that we both can talk about with some authority and which I hope that the listeners can appreciate as well. Uh, there's a good mix of, you know, common Western birds that are vagrants out here, common Eastern birds that are vagrants where Ted is, and of course the birds that are found across the continent or in both places with some regularity. So that, that's how we do it. That's the gist. Um, Ted, anything you want to add about uh, the random number? Do you have any good uh, good voodoo to send the random number generator's way? Any birds you particularly want to talk about? <laughs> no birds <laughs> I particularly want to talk about. It's, it is always very a uh, very random uh, undertaking for us. I like right to say the name, that right on the tin. Uh, <laughs> Nate once asked me if I'm ready as ever, and I feel like I'm as unready as never. Unready perhaps. as yeah. But anyhow, it, right. it, it, it's fun, and we'll we'll see where it goes. I, I, a comment I've made before is I am just struck by how much these two states have in common. Um, I mean, it's easy to think of Colorado as being in the Rocky Mountains and North Carolina being out in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere like, mm-hmm. like that. And although it is true that the Rockies and the ocean are significant components of our state's avifaunas, there's so much in common as well. And that's always very striking to me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, let's uh, let's put the generator to work and uh, see what we have here. Okay. Uh, three. Well, we've wow. already done three. We did that in a previous episode, so, so we've like got to hit it. We got to hit it. Something. Or, Let's yeah. put the. It is. It's, it was snow goose. Oh, snow goose. Uh, okay. So, so refer to an older episode uh, okay. to hear our conversation about snow goose. Okay. Um, twenty. Still early. At oh that, my goodness! Guess, this or? is a bird that you would be shocked. It, like, this is a bird that non-birders know. This is uh, this is the most male of the ducks. The mallard. The mallard. mallard, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, the, the name mallard, I guess, goes back to an old English word that means like essentially male duck. I think, or yeah, wild male duck or male super wild macho eater. duck. Yeah. Right, yeah. So. Wow, the mallard. This may be the, <laughs> the most. Like, what, what, do you, the, what, what do you have to say about the mallard? Everyone I, knows I mean, the mallard. In, in some ways, I have like so much to say about the mallard. Yeah. It's just it's just such an amazing bird. Um, it is, of course, an incredibly common bird, a very aggressive a bird, bird, a very successful bird. It's one yeah, of the birds. That, I mean, almost everybody knows. I think if you just sort of try to conjure your idea of what a duck looks like, is it like one of the birds that's found on six of the seven continents? Like, I think so. I think it's on. I think it's on every continent. Yeah, except and, for and, Antarctica. And that's where like the story gets weird. So of course, yeah. um, its range has been expanding tremendously um, over well, past hundred plus years. And uh, not only has its like geographic range been expanding, but like it's um genetic like i don't know like 
dominance has been um, spreading as yeah. well as it spreads its genes it to other species. The most male duck. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> like here in the ABA area, the uh, the Hawaiian duck, the Mexican duck, the American mm. black duck, the mottled duck are all sort of becoming more mallard-like as the mallards' genes mm. uh, spread into. Um, into the, these other species, like and the, the, the ducks elsewhere in the world, like that Pacific black duck and, and so forth. So um, it's a um, problematically successful <laughs> bird, sort of too successful if you're an American black duck or a model duck or a Hawaiian duck or, or a Mexican duck. But um, behaviorally fascinating. Um, I just, I mean, so adaptable, so resourceful. Mm-hmm. Um, new behaviors are evolving in, in mallards. Um, heavy metal resistance has been evolving recently um, just it's a fascinating but problematic bird i guess i would say yeah yeah you have any takes on the uh the wide array assembly of uh mallardish birds that are common at like every public park across the uh across the entire world so you mean like d- domestics and feral yeah i mean the, the, well you know ebird you put them in ebird as oh, uh yeah. mallard parentheses domestic type yeah and uh yeah, I, I, I mean, they're just they're just everywhere. So it's fascinating. It's also difficult, I think, to discern or assess without yeah. genetics sometimes. I, 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 I mean, I, I hope I'm not sounding dismissive here. I, I think it sometimes gets a little theological when mm. like, we, we don't have the genes. We don't have, you know, usually incredibly close details of, of behaviors. But, yeah, no, the sort of whole distinction between birds of feral stock and birds of, you know, pure or wild stock, um, I I, like I get it conceptually, but it's off. It's awfully hard to, to sort of, for for me anyhow to sort of mm-hmm. like you know confidently assess and yeah when I'm birding. Yeah. yeah, it's the it's the similar sort of situation with Canada goose, I guess. Right. Although Canada goose is not nearly as varied in its appearance. Um, we and and speaking as a as a birder in a state where we still do have migratory quote unquote wild mm-hmm. mallards that spend the winters in um in the eastern part of the state. Um, they do feel different, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It, as you say, it's it's theoretical. It's conceptual. I don't think that they're any in any way all that different from the mallards that are at the you know fishing dock down at the public park. Right. But um, you know, they they do feel a little more wary. They they tend to you know spook a little bit easier when you get too close to them. But yeah, I don't even know what the situation is with those birds it's anymore. Funny, you, you just like for some somehow you conjured this ancient memory of mine. It was like from the nineteen eighties. <laughs> like my, my, what I thought at the time was my first ever encounter with what I consider to be wild mallards. And like mm-hmm. I could go back and find that field notebook entry. I was like really like impressed by because just like what you were saying, their wildness, their wariness, yeah. their their flightiness. Their, they act uh, a little bit different at least. Yeah, um, and you know it, there are some a few other birds that just you know sort of run the gamut from like totally like humanized and urbanized to um you know in the wildest places the american robin always comes to mind now, there, there, mm-hmm. there's really no such thing as like a feral robin they're all wild but you know you can find them like in central park well not, not never mind central park you can find them like on in Times square um but also like in the remotest parts of alaska uh and i just think that's really cool uh, the other one for me is rock pigeon so yeah oh for um, sure yeah that's the one that first came to mind for yeah, me yeah. yeah you know on the one hand you know they are like the bird of Times square but you know they nest you know amid like California condors and golden eagles, like in these you know, remote cliffs in you know California and Arizona, and that's just it's so wild to me that you know the rock pigeon is one of our like most rugged and wild birds, and also a city bird. So, yeah, do you, I, I think birders sort of treat these two populations of mallards differently. Yeah, uh, which is which is I don't know. I, I like I get it. Like I get what appeals to people about birding is that um, 
you know, there's this wildness aspect of the the birds that you're seeking out. And, you know, if they're a little bit wary, then that's the thrill of the chase or the thrill of the hunt or whatever. But there's really nothing different from the mallards that are, you know, a quarter mile away from me across a, a shallow impoundment at Lake Matamesquite. And the mallard that is, as I said, like hanging around the fish dock at the, uh, at the local public park, uh, they look the same. I certainly get better photos of the second one. Um, but yeah, there's, there's something that feels different about it. And I don't, I don't know, really know what yeah, that no, is. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And you've kind of pressed one of my buttons, as you can probably imagine. Please, yeah. I totally understand the distinction between, let's say, whatever words you want to use, like wild or natural populations right, yeah. and individuals versus like feral and let's say established or, you know, escaped populations and individuals. And like, that, that's cool. Like, I, I, I get that. But um, I, I guess I sometimes find myself sort of a champion for the, uh, the birds that maybe like against all odds. <laughs> oh, are, yeah, the under um, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, like, or like, like um, I'm thinking the under flamingo. Um, I don't know we had this, this major flamingo event since the last yeah, time yeah. you and I spoke. But um, when I lived uh, in, in Nevada and was sort of roaming the Great Basin searching for birds, there was a, a Chilean flamingo that had oh, escaped right. from the okay. Tracy Avier. Oh, yeah, you, I think maybe you know about that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with that sort of situation that's yeah, happened in North but, Carolina as well, actually. Yeah, but, but so that bird um, – survived for like years and it like adopted a northern hemisphere molt strategy it was migrating but obviously not with flamingos with like long-billed curlews and stuff like that and like it, it went thing. north in the summer and came back to the great salt lake in the winter and um also i'm fond of its name they called it pink floyd but uh but yeah but but that bird was i mean I think it was just fascinating. I don't just mean like sort of like, and you mentioned like root for the underdog, but just like biologically, how this bird escaped from an aviary, adopted mm-hmm. a um, a molt schedule that made sense and like figured out that, well, there are no flamingos here, so I'll migrate with long-billed curlews. And it's the closest it was thing. <laughs> pretty, pretty amazing bird, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Anything else you want to add about the mallard before we move on to, uh, to Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll simply say that, um, you know, we've, I bet we've, both you and I have been sort of thinking of these birds with green heads, you know, while we've been. Oh yeah, for sure. But, but yeah. you know, not all mallards have green heads. No, it's like, true. Half the population, half, yeah. half, the, half the population doesn't. In fact, by the way, when the, the males are in what we call eclipse, the plumage, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the briefly held um, sort of messy plumage in fall, they also have uh, early summer, late summer, I should say, they also have brown heads. So, um, you know, when it comes down to separating mallard from, um, you know, American black duck out in your part of the world, or, or mm-hmm. heaven forbid, you know, a mallard black duck hybrid or something no, like that. Increasingly model duck. <laughs> model duck, yeah, they're moving yeah. up north. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's um, that's a real challenge. So, I mean, in some ways, you know, uh, yeah. what the hunters call the green head is sort of like the easiest bird to identify in the ABA area. Yeah. But, um, you know, paradoxically, you know, on the short the, list, yeah. Yeah, but, but, you know, the female brown ducks, you know, for, for us, you know, separating, you know, Mexican, is in Colorado, you know, Mexican duck versus, um, you know, female mallard is a quite a challenge so, oh for yeah. sure so i'll yeah. just add you know by saying that you know as easy quote-unquote easy as the um the greenhead males are um the species actually presents a lot of id challenges as well every yep. every bird even yep. mallards contain even mallards. multitudes yep. <laughs> all right uh let's hit the number generator again okay. it takes us down to the bottom a three one three okay so deep into Ooh. the passerines yeah screen. this is another wide-ranging bird so this is fun um savannah sparrow mm. Savannah sparrow. I love the yeah. savannah sparrow. So, uh, probably the one of the best examples of clinal variation among uh, North American birds in that uh, they look so and sound so different on either side of the continent, but it's sort of a long gradation across yeah, the continent. Most of the time, it most is. Most of the time. Uh, right. Yeah. So, like, I'm thinking like your Ipswich sparrow. Back, oh, Ipswich. Back yeah. East we could talk about well, Ipswich. Well, well but, but that, that is one that I 
as I understand it, has always been considered to be just a, a perfectly sort of tried and true, if you will, normal or ordinary um, savanna sparrow. It's just subject. Yeah, to, I'm trying to, to think of like very old field guides that I had that may have separated it out. I think oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe golden guide considered it a full species. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful bird. I mean, it's big oh, and yeah. pale. and has a very, very yeah, unusual cool win, wintering ecology. I mean, it's an extraordinary bird. But, but no, I was thinking of... Uh, Taking a Western bias here, you know mm. the um, that large build um, population. Mm, all right, yeah, which, even yeah, those, yeah, yeah. So that probably is a you know a good species. And then the belding sparrow, um, a little farther north, um, but you know smaller, darker, but also has a big bill, um, appears to be part of the the large build population. Uh, just I, the large build sparrow, which I've actually only seen like once or twice, well, twice in my life. <laughs> it's an incredible bird. It doesn't look or feel anything like a savanna sparrow. Yeah. Um, I mean, it it it, it looks. I mean, it's a, it's a big a honking big billed bird with a very unusual ecology its ecology is almost like you know hermon's gull or yellow um hmm. uh, yellow uh, sorry yellow-footed gull or something like that and, and um its song is very buzzy it, i mean it doesn't sound like a savannah sparrow at all um it's interesting that they're not i mean i know i that's always been on the short list of possible splits know, but it feels like it's always I... been on the outside looking in but it's it's more of a maybe an obvious split than something yeah. sort of de rigor now like stellar's jay or I don't know, white-breasted nuthatch or whatever things that people are considering possible splits down the road. The kind of uh, company line that I've gotten yeah. is that for birds that are too complicated, so savannah oh, sparrow, yeah, yeah, like fox sparrow, you mentioned maybe white-breasted nuthatch, um, red crossbill for sure. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's like you know, let's deal with the ones that would just be like two or three-way splits. But yeah, the thing with savannah sparrow is there are so many populations, and then mm-hmm. like the, the whole question of the status of buildings, you know, vis-a-vis, you know, the, sort of the rest of the population versus um a large build is such a tricky one so yeah i, I mean and this is like this is such a totally crude and unscientific thing to say but like like when you go to the salton sea and like see a savannah sorry a, 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 a large build sparrow um, so if i said thick build earlier i thick large build, build large build large build yeah, restratus i think or something like that it's like how could anybody call that a savannah sparrow? It's just like so different. Whereas, yeah. and I love Ipswich sparrows. I'm not trying to like diss the Ipswich sparrow, but it does look like a look and it's sound like, like a, a paler, a big yeah. white pale. You know, yeah. um, I mean, they're I, distinctive when you see yeah. one. It's like uh, it's yeah. sort of like Downy and Harry Woodpecker. Like people are like, oh, it's a difficult difficult to pick out from the other savannah sparrows. But when you see one, it's like, oh yeah, that's that's something different. That's an Ipswich yeah. sparrow. But yeah, if you saw like um a, like a large built sparrow. Just mm-hmm. I've not seen. That. I've seen buildings, but not not. Yeah, large bills the the wild one. They're like I don't think mm-hmm. like savannah would come to mind. Like I mean, yeah. it just looks like a sparrow, a new world, you know, a passerella, a new world sparrow. But beyond that, like I don't know, vesper sparrow or something. I, I don't. It, just, yeah. it doesn't really remind me of a savannah sparrow at all. I, I think savannah sparrow. You, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm just sort of remembering this off the top of my head. Is one of the birds that has of North American birds that has the most named subspecies yeah like 22 I mean, oh it's 20, ridiculous ridiculous and most of them are I, I, probably not good right. like they're yeah. everyone and their brother was trying to name a subspecies in like the early early 1800s and uh you know some of them are clinal variation it's not yeah. not a subspecies and i wonder if that plays into the perception of confusion there you know if you feel like you have to get a sample from all 50 odd subspecies of savannah sparrow to get a full look at what the you know genetic landscape of that species is, then people are less likely to, to want to tackle that as opposed to something that feels maybe a little simpler. Yeah. I think that's a big job. <laughs> I think there's sort of some, some baggage. Yeah, there, maybe um, for, for, for historical baggage there for sure. Um, hey, just two other random savannah sparrow. Random Go facts. for it. Um, yeah. So um, remind me, um, what's it's, 
what did scientific name again? I'm trying to remember. Oh, it's got a, it's, 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 it's own and yeah. yeah, it is. But what's the, um, what's the species name? <laughs> is it not Savannarum? Savannarum. No, that, that's grasshopper sparrows. It's sandwichensis. Oh, that's hang right. On. That's right. It, um, oh, um, I think it's sandwichensis. Hang on. I'm going to look something up here right that's now. That's right. I can know. Oh, can I'm you do it for me, actually? Yeah, I can't. Well, right. I pulled out a bird book instead okay. of just going to the His name hasn't changed in a long time, but um, I think it's like Sandwichensis. Um, oh, this is, I grabbed an older bird book, so the sparrows are not where I was here. I'm flipping through. This is great. This is great audio right here. Well, listening to me flick through a field guide. <laughs> <laughs> a field guide? What's that? No, I know, right? Hang on. I'm going to look up. I have my I have my phone. Yeah, so it's it is sandwich sandwichensis. It, it, right. Yeah, yeah. So that name is um is really weird. So you know, when you think of sandwichensis, you know that's an old name for Hawaii. Yeah, um, yeah, right. But sandwich but it's, Island. But, yeah. but it's like named for like, and I I might be so wrong about this. You know, somebody can call it and correct us. But I believe it's like named for some fairly like obscure like island in Alaska where like you know what I have here uh, oh, Ted, oh, is Hob- the, Jobling's Dictionary of Scientific oh, How Got the Bird So I think I, I think the name Sandwichensis is like a real shocker like it's like somewhere like in like southeastern Alaska or something like that but while you're looking up um, <laughs> how double, I got that name I'll also mention stuff. that the Savannah Sparrow is really cool for having a multiple records of vagrants to Hawaii so it is a hmm. truly sort of like hmm. all ABA area bird it's named I believe for like some small island off the coast of Alaska it um, vagrates or has vagrated on several occasions to Hawaii. It's probably multiple species and it's like everywhere. Okay. So, uh, okay. Ted, I, I found a sandwich census okay. in Jobling's All right. uh, Helm Dictionary of Scientific Bird Names. And it is far more complicated than you ever could possibly <laughs> imagine. Because there are multiple, what I said, there are okay. multiple species that have sandwich census as a specific right. epithet. And they all refer to different sandwiches. Sandwich islands, yeah. Yeah, so um, the sandwich flycatcher, uh, which is Chesiemsis, is uh, uh, Hawaiian islands. Sandwich right. rail, um, which is Panula, is, uh, well, I, I'm going to be reading this wrong, but it's, uh, that's uh, the Unalaska sandwich sound of Alaska. Yeah, and I think that's the one where the sandwich, sorry, where the Savannah Sparrow gets its name, too. Yeah, and there's a uh, Kuril or Aleutian Archipelago. Um, I think that, yeah, that's the sandwich bunting, which was, a, I guess, a former name of it in like the 1700s. A sandwich turn. Anyway, it, it's a mess yep. is what it is, yep. <laughs> which makes sense, which is appropriate, I suppose. Yeah, yeah you, sandwich, you look at that name, you have sandwich sandwiches, and like, yeah. even if you're in the know, you think Hawaii, and then you realize yeah. Alaska. Wow. All right. Yeah. So A lot of sandwiches going on here. And of course, you know, sandwich turn is sandwich England, so sandwich yep. UK. And, so. and the sandwich turn is, if we get that one. How Lord knows how many species are involved in that one, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And and by the way, that that could be in our random number generator. Believe it or not, there's a sandwich turn record. For oh really? Colorado. Oh, yeah, yeah, for Colorado. Yeah. 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 So sandwich 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 sparrow. I'm trying to call it yeah, Savannah, Savannah sparrow. Yeah, uh, is a species that I encounter uh, somewhat regularly where I live. Um, they they, you know, they they breed in kind of the the higher elevations of the Southern Appalachians. They're common migratory bird, common winter bird. Um, I always associate them with like pastures and also dunes. They're always on the dunes in the Outer Banks too. And that's where you can find the Ipswich, but most of them are just the regular sandwich. Sandwich Savannah. Oh my God. It's in my head and I can't get rid of it. Yeah. And there's also the name Savannah itself, by the way, you know, there's two spellings of the word Savannah and the oh question of whether God. it refers to Savannah, Georgia versus the Savannah habitat. And that's another tricky one. Oh man. <laughs> so which well. is the sparrow? I think yep. it's Savannah, Georgia. Yeah, I believe that's the case. And then uh, you alluded uh, to this earlier, but then the grasshopper sparrow is Savannah. Uh, it used to be a modem, I don't even know what it is anymore, but something Savannarum, which means of or pertaining to the savannas, which is the habitat. So yeah. it's so complicated. Yeah. yeah. 
Thank you. Thank yep. you to the taxonomists of <laughs> the 18th and 19th centuries for confusing. Well, and also oh. the 21st centuries for continually changing <laughs> the names. And by the way, I, I don't I don't mean that in a mean way at all. I'm obviously we're totally updating and upgrading um, the scientific names, um, mm-hmm. and you know it, it almost invariably reflects you know better understanding. And just you know when I think about the sparrow names, the scientific names that I kind of learned and to some extent memorized when I was a kid, like they're completely different now. Oh like, yeah, every, oh, every yeah, sparrow sure. is like in a different genus. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. More things change. Yep. More they, or they, yep. more things stay the same. I don't know how that works in, with regard to birds, but all right. Anyway, let's hit the random number generator. Let's do it now. Back to the top sixty-five. Six five. Oh, this is a fun one. That is a vagrant for both of us, and not a bird that I have seen uh, in North Carolina that I've seen mm-hmm. elsewhere. Mexican violet ear. Wow. Yeah. We have like, I guess we do have yeah one record for, for, for maybe for, one or two. I mean, not very many. Yeah. Um, so that's a cool bird. The one thing I'll say about it now is that, you know, it's a great example of how we're just learning more and more about birds and mm. you know, their populations mm-hmm. are changing, but our knowledge is changing um, as well. So when I started birding, by the way, that bird had a different name then too. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's green is, is, yeah. yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it's a split now. It's, it's changing, but you know, um, it was like, you know, a mega, you know, I mean, if it, oh, in the bird, ABA area, not just in the state. Right, yeah. right. That's what I in the, in the ABA area. Yeah. Like if one were spotted in Texas, like people would go there to try to find it. Yeah. Um, and um, do, now it's, yeah, but you have breeds um, and it's absolutely, you know, an annual, you know, but rare uh, species there that may to some extent reflect, you know, a, an actual range um, shift, but also just the fact that lots and lots of birders, you know, get beyond mm. just a few hot spots in the valley and I don't know, you know, airports in <laughs> Dallas and Houston and stuff like that. So um, just an example of a bird who's not only name has changed, but who's like, like our understanding of its status really has changed as well. Um, it's basically just a, um, an annual, um, it's annual in Texas and, and breeds in very small numbers. Yeah. And um, it's, in it's annual in weird places across the ABA area as well. Like it's, it's practically guaranteed to show up somewhere in an odd place every year. There was, there was just one like last week in Virginia. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm trying to find out how many records North Carolina has. Like it, it's, it's more than two, but I think yeah. less than like six. So yeah. I would guess it's one for Colorado. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be six. That's for, for, for sure. But then again, I mean, the parts of Colorado sort of where I would expect oh, actually, it to show two, up. So I was wrong. Is it two? Yeah. Okay. Two. Um, are not well birded either and um it is always interesting with me for birds like um the violet ear to try to ascertain i use that old name a moment ago there <laughs> green violet ear but but I have to try to ascertain you know how much of it is due to like just better awareness and coverage yeah. by birders versus um you know actual you know range shifts and with hummingbirds that's so tricky because we know their ranges are changing especially in mm-hmm. your part of the world uh, but we also know that more people are paying attention than ever definitely and disentangling between those two effects is really challenging What's the vagrant hummingbird situation in Colorado? Do you get several species regularly every year? We, yeah, I mean, we in North Carolina are, are we do shockingly well when it comes to vagrant hummingbirds. Kind of depends on what. You, yeah, with, so we don't have that West Coast situation that you do because we're in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so we have uh, four totally regular species here: black chin calliope, rufous, and um, broad-tailed. And um, ruby-throated is definitely regular in very, very small numbers in the eastern part of the state. Um, 
the, well, I'm not sure what we call this bird anymore. The Magnificent or Rivoli's Hummingbird um, is probably <laughs> annual to Colorado, but like in the, I'm sure it is, but you know, in the southern tier of counties, which are heavily wooded and, you know, sparsely mm-hmm. populated by humans. But, you know, after that, though, we have, you know, sort of a little bit of, of everything. We have, you know, a, a, yeah. you know Anna's is almost um, annual, for example. One thing I always get a kick out of, though, is this. Um, we have no records of, and so do many other states in our region, no records of Allen's hummingbird. And like, hmm. but every like self-respecting state east of the Mississippi, like, oh, yeah. has has Allen's, and they're and, increasing it. Feels like too. And I'm like, why don't we get them? I mean, when I, I by the way, I, somebody from Nevada can call in and, and correct me on this, but like, unless this has happened recently, even Nevada doesn't have an Allen's hummingbird. Recent. I know it's like so close to where they're like yeah. totally regular, but, um, well, they're very difficult to identify and, yeah. you know, um, they are in general, if they're coming through Nevada or Colorado, you know, not really sticking around the way, the way they do it in North Carolina or yeah. Boston or New York city or somewhere like that. So. so I wonder if it has to do with the fact that until relatively recently, pretty much every Rufus hummingbird that was seen in my state of North Carolina, and I think this is true of a lot of the states in the East, was banded and well photographed because it's vagrant and all that. Mm -hmm. And so that's usually how people would find Allens. Like there'd be a Rufus pop up, the hummingbird banner would go over, they'd have a look and say, oh, you know, know, tail looks like an Allens on this bird. And then the word gets out that it's an Allens. I wonder if that doesn't happen in Colorado because you get so many Rufus hummingbirds. Like no one's one's catching the Rufus Um, hummingbirds and putting them in your hand. Partly, but there are banding stations and, mm-hmm. and I mean, there are late hummingbirds and yeah. I mean, I remember just, I think it was last year, a little bit later than this time of year, you know, there was a uh, Rufus hummingbird coming to a feeder and, mm-hmm. um, uh, sorry, a, you know, a Salasphorus, a Rufus Allen's hummingbird yeah. coming to a feeder and, um, it was just, you know, sort of, um, just glibly eBirded as, I understand as, as a Rufus, I thought, wait mm-hmm. a minute, well, how do we know that? Yeah. And I, I don't recall ever seeing photos, so that record was sort of lost. But um, yeah, you know, a, a mid-November Salasphorus, um, Colorado, I'd love to get a photo of one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah um, you know, Mexican Violet Deer is probably one of the rare, well, it is, like, we've only got two records. But um, you know, we, uh, where I live, we've got, a, I think, something like 10 or 12 hummingbirds on the state list, mm-hmm. including some uh, one-offs, uh, like, uh, you know, the mango. Mm-hmm. And um, we've got a couple of records of buff bellied. So, you know, we do pretty well. Rufus, obviously, every year, several. Um, Black Chinned and Calliope are probably the next most likely ones. And then there's a pretty significant drop off after that for the others. But um, it's a it's a good it's a good group. We're getting we're getting rare birds every year. And like I said, that this uh, recent um, green Mexican violet ear, here I am trying to call it green yeah, violet ear. Yeah, I know. Uh, Mexican violet ear was just across the border and um, could have easily been in North Carolina at some point. It would have been right. our third. We haven't had one in 20 years, it looks like. So, mm-hmm. oh. yep. So, so uh, I mean, I, it's still not even um, casual to Colorado, I would call it. Yeah. Absolutely accidental. Yeah, I would say but, it's the but, same. Too, but the way but things are going, both. you know, <laughs> we'll do this when we do random birds in 20 years. It, it's going to change quite a bit. So, <laughs> so maybe so. I will have added the new species on uh, on this list by then. Yep. Certainly okay. Lemkin. Um, That's right. For both states. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, hit it again. Yep. Two, nine, three, okay. down towards the bottom. Ooh, this is a former ABA Bird of the Year and not a bird oh. I've ever seen, so I don't have a lot of... Oh, two, uh, lot it's going to be a long spur, I'm guessing. It's a long spur. <laughs> it's chestnut-colored long spur. <laughs> yeah. The only ABA Bird of the Year that I have not seen. That's funny. I don't think I'm alone in that. 
Well, I guess I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, please. Tell us about Longsburg. I can yes. tell you about the distribution <laughs> in North Carolina. There have been two. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, it's a breeder in, 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 in Colorado. Um, it's, a, it's a great little bird. Um, yeah, it's a neat looking bird for yeah, sure. It is. Of the, so we have three species that are of regular occurrence in Colorado, the uh, the Lapland, which forms huge flocks in the winter, uh, and then the thick-billed, which along with the chestnut-collared breeds in Colorado. Um, chestnut-collared is the less common of the two breeders. Um, one, yeah, they're incredible to look at in, in breeding plumage. And, I mean, yeah, the males. I've but, seen but, photos. But, yeah, but, but the females <laughs> as well. Um, they're really... Um, they're really little birds. That's something that's always... Oh, really? So I, yeah, when I see like a thick-billed and a... Um, a um, chestnut collar together in a wire. And that does sometimes happen, especially at Pawnee National Grassland. You know, the thick bill's like a hawking big bird with a big hmm. bill. Like a, and um, I, I'm one of the few people who like doesn't object to the name thick-billed longspur. I think that it actually does well describe yeah. um, the physiology of that bird. Um, that The chestnut collar is just a kind of dinky little bird. Um, but uh, it's a bird associated with um, somewhat taller grass situations mm-hmm. than thick build. And at Pawnee, um, so the Pawnee National Grassland is that famous, uh, you know, sort of grassland birding hotspot just north of Denver. Um, basically, it's in good years, it's thick builds everywhere. But if you find like a little low swale or just like a little grassy patch where there's been a seep or a spring, like by golly, there'll be a, a, a chestnut collard mm-hmm. in there. So I like to think of those two as just a great example, of like microhabitat. Um, distinction. You take a look at the Pawnee and you're like, oh my gosh, this place looks exactly the same. <laughs> but it, but it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, there are little patches of, you know, sort of greener, wetter, taller grass. And that's often where the uh, chestnut collards will be. Hmm. Yeah. I remember uh, back when we made chestnut collard longspur the bird of the year, it was late in that year that we started this podcast. So it was mm. seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to Scott Summershoe, who was a researcher oh, yeah. in, in Montana who had done a lot of stuff with chestnut collared longspur trying to find chestnut collared longspur people to talk about it and talk about the um you know the interesting ecology of that that of that part of the world and the you know conservation status of that bird all longspurs do the kind of skylarking fly up in the air and they do the song and then they come back down that's a that's a longspur thing that's not just a chestnut collared longspur thing oh no 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 yeah, yeah um yeah. The, the thick build is the one that i really associate oh, yeah. that with they remind me a little bit of not the song but like the 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 flight display of like a lark bunting they sort of fly yeah, it's like yeah, this yeah. isosceles triangle they go up in this kind of like you know at an angle and then come down at the same angle and they give that very uh in the case of the thick build that sort of very amorphous song the um the song of the chestnut collar is sort of more defined i guess i'd say mm-hmm. but i can't resist um going back to scott Summershoe. um i just want to point out that since the time of that interview he has seen the light and he and his family have relocated to the front range metro region in denver so we have <laughs> scott have in Co- so many people as have so many area. other people i know <laughs> but uh, we have scott in colorado now so i'm very happy for that uh, addition to our uh, birding community uh, that's nice so. one, of, one of our very first american birding podcast guests cool great yeah maybe the second one ever Anyway, uh, I have nothing really to add. <laughs> I was just, the, the only thing I was going to add about long spurs yeah, is please. that, um, yeah, so um, talk about birds sort of bopping around in the checklist. and um, Oh, yeah, yeah So, you know, um, so now they're, con- they're sort of at the beginning of the this group of basically the birds at the back of the book, the, the so-called nine primary bossines um, or, or passerines. And um, I'm actually sort of thinking of something I think you said on social media in the past day or so that, you know, pe- pe- people get used to this, but I remember when the, when the long spurs were moved out of the sparrow family. So, so the, mm-hmm. the, the long spurs used to be considered um, sparrows. There was just like wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, oh my gosh, Every like this time. will never catch on. I mean, they're so 
blatantly, obviously sparrows. This is going to completely confuse, you know, naturalists. And like, who even remembers that they ever used to be sparrows? And certainly, like any bird <laughs> under the age of thirty, like sparrows, uh, but they're really more like larks. I, so it's, I, I, I mean, <laughs> do they? I, I mean, okay, but I mean, their molts are totally different. Their flight calls are totally different. Their songs are totally different. Their flock behavior is totally different. They walk differently. Yeah. To me, they're just so. Different, you know, yeah, you said larks, maybe pipits. Um, yeah, yeah, they are like pipity. That. But, yeah. but that's just an example of like a a reorganization that you know. I at the time I was like, oh, that's cool. Although um, uh, Jim Rising was still alive at the time. He, he was you know sort of the expert on uh, mm-hmm. sparrows in North America. And I remember he was just saying, well, yeah, this was the most obvious thing in the world. He like always <laughs> cringed at having to put the uh, long spurs and also the snow bunting and McKay's bunting in his sparrow book because he knew they weren't sparrows. But um, but again, you know, I guess time heals old wounds or something. And now you know a decade or more later many you know newer birders don't even realize that the yeah. lark spurs the long spurs where were sparrows and i think all the rest of us have sort of gotten used to it you know if you go back longer we used to think vireos were like that was the one i was going to call warblers. it that seems like, the most what? obvious example to me but, but, yeah but, my but, early like, field books vireos next to warblers yeah, yeah, and i was yeah. like oh they're they're so similar you have to tell yeah. and now we're like no they don't even act they don't act the same I, I, they don't they, different they, bills they, they kind of yeah other than the fact they live in trees like that's about yeah that's it the answer yeah yeah. Anyway, well, when we can talk about more when we get a when we get a Vireo there. So. There we go. <laughs> Three seventy eight down, oh, down, down. We go. Oh, here's a good one. This one's a more you than me, but I have seen it okay. here. Okay. Western tanager. Oh yeah. Western paranga. I should. So uh, okay. Well, I'll uh, <laughs> I'll take the bait. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. So um. So they're the genus paranga and. Is another taxonomic shift here. So yep, it turns one. out that it's so funny, but all of our tanagers, so Western, Scarlet, Summer, Hepatic, aren't tanagers. They're actually yeah. the cardinal family. <laughs> and in the tanager family are birds like everything from like saffron finch. So I'm thinking of you know, Hawaii, you know, the, yeah. the, the two cardinals out there. Um, you know, yeah, those that, cardinals are not cardinals. You're right. Yeah, yeah, they look like cardinals, but but they're actually they're actually tanagers. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that family Thraupidae um is um the tanager uh, family total that, mess. That, that, that occur contains like no birds called tanager in the ABA area. Right. Um, is it bananaquit? Is that one? Yeah. Is that a, it's just, is that a thraupid so, now? And is and um. Yeah, uh, Morland seed eater. Not, yeah, Morland <laughs> seed eater. Exactly. And then the good old fashioned tanagers, like for example, Western tanager, uh, it turns out are cardinalids. So yeah. they're related to, like, well, the Northern cardinal, the Paraloxia, but not the uh, yellow billed and um, the other one, red crested cardinal in, in Hawaii. So, um, you know, what a what a mess. But this is this is where we need to just raise all the bird names to the ground and start yeah, them yeah, all from start, scratch. Give but, barcodes or yeah. something like that. Yeah, um, hey, I'll tell you a story about. Um, the Western tanager, if you yeah. don't mind. And um, I think it's okay to re- re- recite this. Um, I wouldn't mention any names, but um, <laughs> we were doing just sort of a, a family-friendly beginner bird walk on, on one of those sort of, like we sometimes have those cold, snowy days in, in May here in Colorado. And it was one of those really dreary, you know, snowflakes and even like some snow piling up days. But there were a Western tanagers everywhere. Mm-hmm. And a Western tanager, especially in a snowstorm in Colorado in May, is just like refulgently luminously oh, yeah, radiantly to. glorious and i just i just made this joke i said something like you know never stare directly at a male western tanager can cause permanent retinal damage so i thought that was like pretty obviously a joke and about like half an hour later and i feel a little bit bad telling the story but it's basically funny um a mom who had been on the walk was um chiding one her kid and she said he said don't stare at it you could go blind i thought I didn't really mean that, but anyhow, um, the Western tanager is just such a glorious bird. I remember uh, 
well over 30 years ago, I was doing a um, summer bird survey in New Mexico. I sort of just landed in the West, and um, one of my companions at the time, uh, uh, Charlie Black, um, made the, he's from New Mexico, and he made this comment, like, no matter how many Western tanagers you see, you never get bored of looking at one. Mm, well, at the time, I, at the time, I'd seen like 12 in my life. Now I've seen, you know, 12,000. Mm-hmm. But like, I thought, really? Like, you, you, you never get bored of seeing them? And I have to say, like, thousands of western tanagers later like you just always stop to look at a western tanager they're so brilliant but yeah yeah i mean it's probably one of the more common western vagrants here in the east Uh, we get them you know a handful every single year i've seen them uh, more than more than a couple times uh in the state Uh, i've actually had one of my best uh, my very first Western tanager in North Carolina was probably my best showing up at someone's house and mm-hmm. like watching a bird experience that I've had since I were here. It was a bird that was down in Moore County down in the Sandhills. Mm-hmm. It was showing up at some lady's feeder. Uh, it was uh, up against a golf course, a ton of golf courses down there and, in the pines. And um, I rolled up with my friend, Michael McCloy, and we oh, were sure. uh, we were there to, you know, just we, we would have been happy hanging around in the lady's yard. She was you know, open to birders. We didn't need to, didn't need anything more than that. And she was like, yeah, yeah, come on in, come and sit by, by my kitchen window. And so we go in there and we're, we're sitting there chatting about birds and watching birds. And, um, she's like offering us tons of food. She gave us this really nice coffee cake. Um, it made us, made us coffee or made a pot of coffee. And it was just me and me and Michael just kind of sitting there waiting for this bird to show up. And lo and behold, it did. It was not one of the resplendent ones that you see regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the west it's uh the birds that we get out east we occasionally get those really nice ones but they tend to be you know younger birds first year birds that are they look like the females um sometimes with wing bars they look very much like a almost like a summer janitor with wing bars um for the most part but i was it was a great experience and like the next week i ended up getting another western tanager in someone else's yard in durham county which was which was wild Uh, not quite the as good of an experience but they're they're somewhat regular in the winter And uh, we see them, uh, you know, all the time. They're not on the state review checklist anymore. Right? Yeah, they're Probably one of those, one of the most common yeah, Western vagrants here. Yeah, like yeah. in that kind of like ash-throated flycatcher, exactly, or yeah. Western kingbird category. Yeah. Um, too every year, you, but like two or three. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, Mike, Michael McCoy. I can't. Yeah. Um, human interest note here. Um, he introduced me to the vice of cheer wine when I was uh, oh, well, Carolina. A, he's, he's, yeah, he's a he's a North Carolina boy. So <laughs> I know, but this was in South Carolina, actually, where I was introduced to that vice. But that was great fun. I was oh yeah I was gonna say something else you you briefly alluded to you know male and female western tanagers and one one cool thing in there is kind of like also with Wilson's warblers is that the um the sexual differentiation between the two isn't often sort of what we think or what the, mm. the field guides um, portray or well imply I guess maybe I should say so um, many of the younger males are essentially female like mm-hmm. and many of the, oh, the quite old females are very r- red on that, the face that's right that's one it, of the species there the older females get become very male like yeah. yeah or or maybe we should say the younger males are female like but yeah mm-hmm. so just just because you see like a i mean if you see a magnificently brilliant red you know western mm-hmm. tanager it's probably an older male but beyond that like all bets are off. Like you really yeah. kind of need huh, like to you know, look under the, look under the hood, so to speak. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so the red and yellow don't correspond nearly as neatly to male and female yeah. like Western tanagers. I think we all think. red and yellow, not always a fellow. Not, there you go. Yeah. With the coral snakes and uh, Western tanagers. All right. Uh, hitting the generating yep. button again, back Great. to the top six, two. Uh, oh, I like this one. Eastern whip or will. 
Well, that's a North Carolina bird, although. We, um, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so we get Eastern whippoorwills in Colorado and we get Mexican, where, sorry, oh, really? Arizona, oh. Mexican, yeah, the thing, Arizona, yeah, Mexican, Mexican, Mexican whippoorwill, sorry, whippoorwill, the other yeah. one. Um, yeah. So when we find a whippoorwill in Colorado, we have to sort between the two species. Um, yeah. So um, my guess is that the Eastern's the rarer of the two, mm-hmm. okay. um, but we've had some records in the Eastern part of the state. Sometimes they obligingly sing. That is very helpful. Um, and then Mexican whippoorwill, it might be almost annual in the southwestern hmm. part of the state. They do show up down there. So yeah, that's a, uh, you know, both are um, vagrants to Colorado. I, I would call the Mexican maybe casual and the Eastern uh, accidental. But um, yeah, if you have whippoorwill, you'd better figure out which one it is. It's kind of like getting like a, uh, like a, a big rail, like, you know, King or Clapper in Colorado. It could mm-hmm. certainly be you know, very extreme. I mean, accidental, but it could, could be either way. And um, not Ridgeways. Ridgeways, not a possibility out there. Uh, well, interesting. I, I, I don't know. I hadn't <laughs> thought about that, but yeah, I, I've always treated it as like a uh, Eastern clapper rail versus a king mm. rail problem. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you might be right. Um, so, but no, back to the, the, the whippoorwills that we have both species. Yeah. Um, yeah, we only have the one, obviously. It's a song I think of as my, in my childhood, I grew up in uh, Southern Missouri and uh, we had right. whippoorwills singing in the backyard most summer nights. Um, no, don't run into them quite as often. I don't know if that is partly because whippoorwills and other large insect eaters have been hit especially hard, like their populations are, are declining especially yeah. um, significantly, or uh, the fact that I live in places where I'm not inclined to hear whippoorwills all right. that often. Or, uh, maybe those two things are sort of combined uh, in some ways, but um, it's a bird I, I come across when I do my breeding bird surveys sometimes. You know, you get up in the breeding bird survey and you have to be out there at 5.30 a.m. Uh, to start counting birds. And at my first couple stops, I'll occasionally come across whippoorwills singing uh, when I get out of the car, which is always a nice treat. But not a bird that I encounter quite as often as I would like to do so. That's such a yeah. weird bird. But I think a lot of longtime birders would would attest to this. It's one that pretty significantly declining yeah. over my birding career. Sadly. Yeah, it's, um, I have to say that we birders often sort of, I don't know, knock ourselves down about how bad some bird names are, but the uh, the nightjars <laughs> have some incredible names. Oh, yeah, and, poor, uh, poor Will. Poor, poor yeah. Will, Whippoorwill, Chuck Will's Widow, Paraki, Diabolical yeah. Nightjar, I was Satanic yeah, like Nightjar, satanic things nightjar, like yeah. that. But um, it's funny, I'm, I'm ambivalent about the the names for the, so the, oh, by the way, I should back up here. There used to be one species called the Whippoorwill, one, mm-hmm. one species in the ABA area called the Whippoorwill. Yeah. Um, actually, there are other Whippoorwills, but um, it was split into the two species. Um, the, the reason I said Arizona is because I think the scientific name is Arizona, but the Mexican Whippoorwill and the Eastern Whippoorwill, and I, I guess that's okay. I just, I don't know, I almost wondered. If the, 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 one of the, the Mexican Whippoorwill, it's kind of a stretch to say this say is Whippoorwill. Whippoorwill. It's sort of more like a, I wonder if we could like come up with a different name yeah. for the sound of the Mexican. It's more like a, it's yeah, a, a buzzier, burrier. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work, I realize. But, uh, but yeah, it, um, to me, the honest to goodness Whippoorwill is the one, yeah. is the Eastern Whippoorwill, the, the, the one back up. Um, east yeah um it's it's one of those one of the few species of birds that i have absolutely heard more often than i have seen i think oh i've gosh, seen it maybe I, yep. like oh, i could count on one hand almost Same, the yeah, number yeah. of times that i've actually seen a whippoorwill and at least three of those times when i actively went out to go try and see a whippoorwill one time when i lived in uh, mm-hmm. the triangle of north carolina there's a they're one of the few species that sort of like loblolly pines like uh, you know loblolly pine is I was planted a lot in the Southeast as a mm-hmm. cash crop. 
Um, and so most of the stands of wild lolly pine are relatively recent. They kind of replaced the hardwood forests that were there historically. And um, they, they actually really like that stuff. Um, the kind of sandy soil and the pine needles all over the place. And so you can find some back roads around, or in my case, it was around Jordan Lake. And um, I was able to get a flashlight on a whippoorwill and see yeah. one fly over. They are shockingly big. They are bigger than you yeah. expect when they're flying. It's like a, almost like a Cooper's hawk size. Yeah. So um, speaking of big and um, light jars, um, I, I, like you, I've seen very, very few whippoorwills. I've actually strangely seen um, quite a number of Chuckwill's widows, but mm, almost mm-hmm. all on one night. Uh, the late <laughs> Tom Johnson and I were night birding in Corpus Christi, and there was a strong flight of Chuckwill's widows. And Chuckwill's widows are much bigger. Oh, yeah, they're Eastern huge. Yeah. And they, you mentioned they look like Cooper's hawks. I mean, these were almost like Broadwing hawks. I mean, yeah. they, they were probably more Cooper's hawk size, honestly. Yeah. But um, I just, I mean, you know, by the night of the night, we'd seen quite a number of them. And every time I was just like so shocked by the size <laughs> of them. And they were just migrating right through the city. I, I think we were like out by a hotel. And they're just kind of flying around near the, a boulevard or something that's wild like that but yeah they are they are big birds and um in the case of the chuck wills would almost sort of like you know like unsettlingly large <laughs> they're, they're they're quite big I, I i was just reminded that i did actually get to see a whippoorwill during the day um at the biggest week in american birding this past oh, cool. year there was yeah. one off maggie marsh and um right off the boardwalk and you can imagine the um uh, the uh, attention that it attracted uh, mm. to see a bunch of people kind of stagger around to see a whippoorwill. It's, it, I mean, it's a treat. It's a treat to see that bird, yep. even though they don't really do much. Uh, it's a treat to actually see one. It's a cool bird. It's got a fun scientific name too, Capromolgus vociferous. So vociferous means it's this noisy, yeah. which it is. And Capromolgus is that crazy name based on like an old legend that they goats built the goats at night. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> cool, cool bird. All right. Do we have time for one more, Ted? Oh, sure. I have time right, for one not? more. Let's we'll do it. Finish up with whatever the random generator gives us one... next. 59. I want to make sure I mark. Yeah, I did. Uh, 159. Oh, this is another fun one, but it's definitely one that I see more than you. And Hinga. <laughs> yeah. yeah the bird's so nice, they named it thrice. Scientific name, and Hinga. <laughs> really, and Hinga, and Hinga, and Hinga. Yeah, exactly. It's called the Anhinga. Yeah, so it's, it's accidental in Colorado, mm-hmm. but possibly, I mean, you know, the way things are going, I mean, if it sort of follows in the footsteps of Limpkin and I other, the Anhinga you know, would have gotten there it, first it, before it, the Limpkin. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. So, um, so actually, I would say that every time I see a soaring cormorant in Colorado, yeah, I always look uh-huh. twice, you know, to make sure it's not an Anhinga. So, um, it could certainly show up again here in Colorado. Um, it's a it's a great bird. It's closely related to the cormorant, and um, you know, they're often called snake birds. Mm-hmm. And I think I. Again, this could be, you may have to look this up for me in your jobbling, but um, I believe Anhinga is like a tupi word. It means like, is. Yeah, I was it, just going like, to bring that up. Oh, it is okay, one of the it, few it, birds that has an indigenous um, yeah. and, uh, etymology. Yeah. yeah and, and, it's, and I think it's like, um, it means like devil or evil spirit or something. Be, yeah. I, 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 at some point, I'm going to start wandering into falsehoods here. <laughs> but, um, but you know, th- these legends surround both the Anhingas and also they're the closely related cormorants and mm-hmm. in so many different cultures. Um, they are considered to be like harbingers of doom. I, I, the whippoorwill is kind of like that, actually. Yeah, no, but um, yeah, here. but the um, it's uh, it's a great bird. That interesting sexual dimorphism in the tail. This crazy. It's like mm-hmm. that got those corrugations on it. They're like totally unique. Um, and uh, that's just it's got the like the most unique one of the most unique tails of any bird. And uh, and that bill is just always sort of terrifying. It looks like you could you know seriously injure yourself handling an anhinga. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. 
Um, this is somewhat common in, in North Carolina, certainly in the southern tier in the swamps. They're becoming more common. I believe that they're nesting a little bit further north, even just south of Raleigh these days. Um, they show up in late summer with the, you know, the herons that move around. Um, so we see them every once in a while, even in the Piedmont. So, yeah, it's a bird I see um, a couple times a year, uh, even without oh, okay. working too hard at it. If I, if I work hard at it, I can see one without any trouble at all if I go to where they are. But, um, uh, if, but if you bird Florida, they're, they're literally everywhere. Right. Um, and Hingo's all, it's a wonderful opportunity to get up close to some of these birds. And some of them are, are they are so wild. Um, you mentioned the bill. They actually are one of the, I think boobies are like this as well too, but the nostrils are actually like inside the upper part of their bill. Like they don't have any external nostrils on the outside of the bill. So if you look really, I took, I took some photos, like some portraits <laughs> of, they were so close portraits of an anhinga sitting on a dock and like they, they don't have any visible nostrils. The nostrils are actually inside the mouth of the bill. Um, for, for, huh. for boobies, it's so they, when they dive, they don't so they're like send the, uh, the, water up into their brain, the, the, but they're like the opposite of a tube nose. Yeah, nose. exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's weird. Their faces are very yeah. odd. <laughs> so you mentioned the bill that reminds me of something. I have, you know, relatively little experience with the bird, but, um, the sounds they make, like oh, is that, this grunts uh, but, and groans, but, but, and but also, isn't there like bill clapper? They do bill some bill clapping when they're yeah, on their yeah, nests. Okay, yeah, okay, right. I, yeah. I recall that. From it's been a while. I've but, yeah, seen that in, in South Carolina. Yeah, in, yeah, in Florida, I remember just you know, wondering like what was making that like chattering or clapping. Yeah. Exactly. It, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Water turkey is another um, another yeah. colloquial name for them, uh, along with snake bird. A very evocative bird for sure not uh, one that uh, a lot of people have opinions about even people before you know yeah. ornithology was a formal thing like everyone noticed the hingas for sure a little bit of a paradox with the anhingas i think you know most of the time we think of them as you know literally you know snaking through the bayou mm -hmm. or something like that but when they get up high you know kind of like uh oh like a wood stork or a pelican or something i mean they, they soar and they're oh they're very good and, yeah, yeah yeah and um so you know you see one of those birds just sort of helplessly you know drying out on a snag or you know sort of you know submerging you know into the bayou and you think like how could this thing ever like get airborne let alone you know soar masterfully <laughs> yeah but um it, it's cool that they once they're up there they're really quite competent as flyers yeah another another cool thing about anhingas um having to do with the the way that they feed uh, we often think of the, all those long-billed birds, herons and hingas, cormorants, all the things that kind of, you know, feed in a similar manner. They've got that long head that kind of snakes out and grabs stuff. You know, herons and herons and egrets, um, they don't stab the the food like through the fish. If they catch a fish, right, they actually right. pinch it really, really, really exactly. quickly. Yeah. Uh, the anhinga actually stabs yeah. the fish. Like they go straight through it, and that provides kind of an awkward situation when they go to put the food <laughs> in their mouth they have right. to like flip it around yeah. to get it so that you off their bill and then in their mouth the proper way so you can see them doing that sometimes when they're when they're fishing and it's kind of comical um but also that the young birds sort of have to learn how to do that and so they learn how to do that with um with like twigs like you can see um in hingas in a nest sometime like tossing little branches around trying to orient them in the proper manner it's preparing yeah. for a lifetime of of skewering fish and trying to Bit it down your gullet. Kind of cool, yeah. We think of the um, anhinga as like the anhinga, like yeah. our, it's our anhinga. Just to point out, it's a globally distributed oh, right, um, yeah. uh, family of birds called darters. Uh, and um, we just call ours the anhinga, the others are, are darters, but um, definitely sort of like a conserved body plan, like when you see a darter in Africa or something. Yeah. It, oh, that looks like an anhinga. It does the same thing. But yeah. it, right. But um, 
So it's a, it's something that worked uh, and yeah. has shown up and uh, you know multiple times in the course of of evolution. But uh, ours is the uh, the one and only Anhinga. Yeah, the one and only cool. Anhinga. Yep. All right. Well, we've done almost an hour of these things, yep. and I want to leave right. some birds for next time, okay. uh, of which we still have many, 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 yep. um, which is great. Ted, thanks again for uh, killing another hour with me Great talking fun. about birds, yeah, sure. preparing another uh, podcast episode for when I'm out of town. Um, Ted Floyd, editor of Birding Magazine. You can find him in all the, I guess, the usual places. I will uh, I will see you around. Thanks yep. again for your time. Thanks for having me. Good fun. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get to support projects like this podcast and all the other cool stuff that we do. But membership gets you a lot of great benefits, including magazines. And I really cannot stress this enough. Discounts to partners like OM Systems. That is Olympus Camera Systems. ABA membership gives you a 10% discount on all cameras and lenses if you spend I don't know, $300, $500, you know how expensive cameras are. You're paying for your ABA membership right there. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who wonders why no one ever called those distinctive dark streaked subspecies of Savannah Sparrow grilled cheese sandwichensis. Technical production is by John Lowry. He's a big fan of Ipswich Sparrow taking on the name Lobster Roll Sandwichensis. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Nees, who point out that the little yellow lore in a Savannah Sparrow looks kind of like a mustard stain, making them all Cuban sandwichensis. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association on Blue Sky. We are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. See you next week. <laughs>